Hey, if you criticize the Israeli position, position you're an anti-Semite. I've been told that before. Oh, God. This, this, that <laughs> argument, oh, no. Ah, so that's, that's 4D chess right there, if I dare borrow a term. It's either because 4D chess or 1D chess, wanna, I'm just saying. If you, the way internet flame wars work is this. Legitimate criticism of Israel, followed by the people that criticize Israel saying, I'm going to get called an anti-Semite for this. Well, now that I got my bases covered, I'm going to start talking about how the Zionists run the World Bank. And then it actually does get anti-Semitic. And then somebody says, hey, wait a second, what are you saying? And then, you know, oh, God, I got to say, just don't go don't go on the Internet and read conversations about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It just goes down a rabbit hole of madness. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together several young professionals from all over the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are some of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Guten Morgen. Matthew Spencer Kosiel. Uh, good morning. Valida Azamatova. Hello. And two of our newest Ooh. contributors, Sebastian Moray and a Latvian specialist who will be given the pseudonym Daniel Storm. Sebastian, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Of course. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is uh, Sebastian Moray. I'm a French uh, IR graduate from Sciences Po in Paris and from... Uh, the Middle East, Central Asia, and Caucasus Security Studies program at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And uh, right now I'm back in Paris and preparing for the exam that will hopefully get me into the French Foreign Service. Well, good luck, Sebastian. Thank We're you. happy to have you on. Happy to be here. And Daniel, what can you tell us about yourself? Uh... Well, I'm also uh, the graduate of the University of St. Andrews, of Middle East, Caucasus, Central Asia, Security Studies program. Uh, I'm currently a contributor to the Latvian public media website, where I'm publishing articles connected to the Middle East. And also, uh, I'm an editor of the Foreign Affairs Analysis section, which I co-founded, called Status Quo, and also preparing for future challenges in life. Well, we're happy to have you too, Daniel. Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So this past month has seen a number of major developments regarding American policy towards the Middle East. The first of these that we will discuss today is the status of the Iran nuclear deal. This deal, also known as the JCPOA, was put in place between several of the world's most influential nations and Iran as a means to help stop Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. But earlier this month, the United States announced that it would unilaterally pull out of the deal, despite admitting that Iran was keeping up its end of the bargain. This has thrown the entire negotiation into doubt. Will other nations follow America's lead and leave as well? And does this increase the likelihood of armed conflict with Iran? Who wants to start? It's really difficult to see why the U.S. did this, other than just an F.U. to Iran. 
So even though the United States actually did withdraw from the JCPOA, the uh, European Union is still kind of considering whether to withdraw from the JCPOA. China and Russia have basically will basically say no, they're not going to withdraw from the JCPOA. Um, and China has even gone so far as to uh, hint that if France's uh, oil company, whose name I'm going to forget right now. Um, Total? Yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah, if they withdraw from the South Pars in Iran, uh, the Ch- uh, Chinese Natural Petroleum Company is going to come in, take their entire share, and pick up the uh, where the uh, French company went off. So it, it's really hard to see what actually the United States gains from this, what the game plan was, if there was really a game plan other than flipping off Iran and saying, hey, we can do what we want. But it's... I don't know. It's kind of a debacle. Kind I mean, of a debacle. To, to me, the very obvious game plan for Trump is domestic political gain because his party was against the deal from the f- very first day. Uh, I mean, Obama, uh, the Obama administration was very careful to make the deal binding through a Security Council resolution and not by having Congress ratifying it because they knew that a Republican-controlled Congress would never ratify the deal. So um, the Trump administration going against the deal is, to me, is is very obviously just a question of domestic politics without any real foreign policy strategy behind it. And just to, just on the the position of the EU on this, uh, I, I don't think the EU is pondering whether to withdraw from the JCPOA at all, what they're basically saying under the under the impulsion of of the the French president is that is is a sort of it's formulated in order to please Trump a bit. But the the core of the argument is uh, we want the JCPOA to stay in place for all its flaws, but we recognize its flaws, and if we manage to get an even more comprehensive deal that covers everything that the JCPOA covers. Plus, uh, after the 10 years period, plus, you know, Iranian influence in the region and, and other things, then we will support this other deal. But they're not, they're not at all even considering withdrawing from the JCPOA as things stand. Isn't that just the beauty of it, though, for Trump? It's an unintentional, it could be intentional, but I think it's an unwitting win-win. I mean, because of the nature of, the JCPOA that involves the Security Council in Europe, Trump's withdrawal is a rather low-risk move, assuming the rest of the world wants to pick up the slack for the JCPOA. So, assuming Trump is just saying, we don't want to play our part in it, but we'll let other people carry the burden of this plan. But he's not letting other people do that, is he? Because he is reinstating sanctions that will, through the, the US dollar, that will affect European companies trying to make deals in Iran. Well, well, I, well, I, as I see it, it's not purely domestic thing, any, anyways, uh, because first thing which uh, Trump administration decided to do after its withdrawal from GCPOA was Pompeo saying that we are ready to work with Europeans on the new deal. So basically, the problem, I think, in this case, is that the Europeans and the United States have tactical differences on how to address Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, if Americans say that 
re regional role and ballistic missile program and uh, things like that should be seen together with GCPOA. It's not the same case with Europeans. And uh, basically, why withdrawing from the nuclear deal, I think Trump believes that he can force Europeans and Iranians together to renegotiate the deal in a certain way, because I think he understands that the deal can't work without the States, without the United States anyways. Well, and I think that's uh, getting back to how this might not be a win-win. Uh, I, I actually think that we, or the United States itself, is giving up a large leadership portion in this because people are going to look to the United States and say, well, you're staking this on this kind of a rational claim. Uh, you say it's, it is domestically driven to some extent, but it is worth noting that there is a large majority of Republicans right now who were against with were against withdrawing from the JCPOA just because it was over and done with, and this does more damage withdrawing than it does staying in. But you also have the kind of problem where after withdrawing from the JCPOA, I, I think that you're right, Daniel, that the United States thought that it could use its weight to kind of pressure both the EU and Iran into changing this deal. But to that extent, it's kind of like a, uh, uh, what is it, Suez Canal moment for the United States, where it, this is going to be where you realize it, you're, it's not a hegemon anymore. You can't bully people into these agreements anymore because the world can move on without you. They are economically strong enough to keep moving on without you. And I think that does a lot of damage for the United States in the long run in terms of its ability to formulate agreements or its uh, ability to push its way in agreements. So you're implying that they're enabling room for a paradigm shift. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, definitely. But I feel like... I feel like, though, that Europe is now becoming more distrustful towards Washington, you know, and um, just like Moscow and Russia has said before, I was I want to just clarify and just say what the Russians think of this all. Um, they're acting deeply disappointed in public, but in response to Trump's decision to withdraw from the J JCPOA, um, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Sergei Lavrov, actually he issued a statement uh, blaming the United States, of course, thinking that these actions were based on narrow and opportunistic interests. And I feel like, uh, and even last week, um, the foreign minister was already in chain talks with European leaders discussing the ways to save the deal without the United States. And I feel like uh, I do agree with Sebastian that um, Trump's decision uh, was focused on domestic politics, hoping that it would resonate with the Republicans and it would make him um, ultimately look strong. And I feel like right now Russia is just kind of sitting, you know, with popcorn and looking at how this is all turning for the United States. It's just showing again that the United States is not a good negotiator. It's unreliable. You know, with, if we think about the TPP and the Paris Climate Agreement again, um, Russia is focusing on America's irresponsible moves regarding this agreement. Well, this in conjunction with recent news in Korea, right? Um, in terms of... In terms yeah. Of Actually, I think it kind of shows uh, that if Trump is withdrawing from the deal now before talks with North Korea, that he won't be making bad deals. 
that basically he has to make, uh, basically Kim will have to agree to the deals which encompasses both the regional role and GCPOA. And I think it both resonates good domestically and also good on the international level. Uh, because I think uh, Kim will have to make a lot more concessions now before, uh, before he hoped. I think. So do you think this in that way is kind of a uh, how President Obama and the Western leaders treated the Iran deal beforehand, where we overlooked everything that was happening in Syria to get what we wanted in Iran. And so Trump is doing the same thing, overlooking everything that's happening. Or uh, I think Trump, uh, I think Obama was more willing to overlook things to get consensus going. Right. I think Trump is kind of doing a different approach. He's not willing to overlook these things. He's more willing to pressure actors into submitting. And uh, I think that's what he will be trying to do with North Korea now. And that's why it was beneficial to show the world that he's not gonna be as compliant to the uh, to, to such things for the sake of building consensus as Obama was. But do you think it's going to work for Korea? That's a question. Well, technically, uh, now Chinese uh, limited uh, oil supplies to the Koreans significantly. So that kind of forced the North Korean regime to sit at the table with Trump. Well, it depends what else Trump can force Chinese to do, because definitely in uh, this issue, China is the biggest player. Well, and in that case, I mean, the Chinese and the United States have been uh, trying to, I don't know if they've been trying to reconcile their differences, but to some extent they have. I know that the uh, United States has lifted their uh, embargo of parts on, uh, what is it, ZTE, the uh, Chinese manufacturer there. And in response, China has lifted its embargo of, oh, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but some resource that they buy from the United States. I, I just don't see cooperation really extending beyond those kind of quid pro quos, though. It's I, this, I think that. Oh, sorry. And, yeah, this particular deal actually is is even more of a quid pro quo in the sense that it's it's actually a personal deal with Trump because what we've seen in the news is that the same day that this you know that Trump tweeted about ZTE and all of that, uh, it was announced that. The, Chi the Chinese government would invest in a project in Indonesia that would personally enrich Trump himself. And so you've got... <laughs> the, exactly. And so you've got a sort of very sort of corrupt dealings on the international stage by Trump and the Chinese are taking advantage of that because I guess they're very good at taking advantage of whatever they, whatever, you know, little failing they can find. Well, and that's, I think, a lot of people have been talking about that as well, that to the large extent, both President Putin and President Xi Jinping haven't been defeating the West, per se, on all these different issues, but they've been taking great advantage of where the West decides to trip up. And I say decides because I believe <laughs> these are almost intentional decisions to kind of screw up. Do you guys think that, you know, how... Daniel mentioned before again with uh, him withdrawing from this deal and like kind of pushing other nations to act upon. Do you think that our world is now kind of heading towards a multipolarity and like sort of every nation is on on its own type yes. of game? What do you guys think Completely about that? Yes. 
multipolarity, yes, definitely. And it's it's not just now, it's a long-term trend that we're just you know beginning to see more manifestations of. I don't think that means it's every country for themselves, though. We, you know, multipolarity doesn't mean that every single country becomes a pole. You can have regional hegemons. You can have ideological hegemons. You know, it's it's more than just the U.S. and it's more than just two powers like we had in the Cold War. But it's not necessarily every single every single country playing by its own rules. Yeah, it, it's more like what we see is a revealer of multipolarity. It's not that whatever America's policies have been in the last year cause multipolarity. It's more like they reveal it. I, I disagree with those. I disagree with you guys on that because it. I do think to an extent the United States was a hegemonic power up until, say, 2005, 2006. And at that point, the U.S. decisions really destroyed its uh, its strength in the world. And that was through the liberal international order, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. In that, as you say, it was a we were a, uh, a kind of an intellectual hegemon. We were a we, we're, we didn't have we have uh, military forces around every single most countries on Earth. But it was, to a large extent, like the Chinese didn't have the, they weren't pursuing naval bases in Pakistan. The Chinese weren't pursuing naval bases in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Russia wasn't to an ex, to that extent right there trying to push and say that this is their sphere of influence and you shouldn't interfere in their sphere of influence. And I think that they took advantage of the Western kind of trip up to really pursue that, and I think to a large extent it's worked. I I, I would actually disagree with, uh, with with this being the moment of multipolarity. Uh, I w- I would say that definitely world is moving to that, but GCPOA is not this moment because I think the deal can't exist without United States anyways. I think definitely Europeans will be trying to protect their economic interests in Iran, and also Russian and Chinese will be interested to economically uh, help Iran to survive the sanctions regime. But anyways, the economic benefits, what Iran itself seeks, uh, which would uh, be given by accessing Western markets, which is mostly dominated by by financial system, which is dominated by the United States itself, I think that will be a really uh, bad thing for that, and uh, I think Trump understands it. I'm, I'm going to piggyback on what Daniel's saying uh, in terms of an economic system. So, for example, when you're talking about, you know, is American hegemony, hege- hegemony in decline? You know, maybe in terms of, like, traditional uh, metrics of power, for sure. But after the fall of the Soviet Union... Um, intellectuals in Washington, D.C. decided we need to produce a global world order as a contingency. And we did this through organizations like the WTO. And so even if America might not be the most, might not be the greatest soft power indefinitely, we've created all these institutions that will live on. For example, um, Japan is going to try and use the WTO as leverage against the U.S. in relation to all these uh, all these uh, tariffs that uh, Trump initiated regarding steel, so institutions we produce can be used against us. But in a way, that's sort of the beauty of these liberal world order institutions that the U.S. created as part of the Washington Consensus is 
um, it kind of creates a world favorable to our, you know, our, to the society that we want to see on a global level. Well, sure, but so, only if they play by those rules. I mean, you had the international, what was it, uh, International Maritime Association ruling against China in the South China Sea two years ago, and China just straight up ignored it. I mean, the United States, if we are ruled against, we'll just straight up ignore those sorts of things. And I think that China would not have had the gumpture to just completely ignore a ruling like that before, say, 2005, when the United States was seen as somebody who could actually reinforce or enforce those sorts of norms across the world. But with no one really stepping up to enforce norms across the world, in fact, countries stepping up to bring up new norms, I don't think these standards really have... I, I, I agree with you that it's not now that this is happening, but this is a trend, and I believe that this is where it's going to end up, that these norms aren't going to be nearly as important as they were because people are just going to ignore them in favor of different regimes and different rules. Well, and I think to some extent that's always been the case, right? I mean, at least with the United States, we created all these norms and then we would be the very ones to turn around and break them. And the issue was no one else was doing that because no one else was in the powerful enough position to be able to break those norms. And now we see all of these other nations which have risen in power relative to the United States. And so now they have the capability to break these norms. And so, yeah, I think... It's not exactly new, but what's new is that other nations are now able and almost empowered to break some of these norms, too. Um, fortunately, I do think that, you know, I am an eternal optimist. I do think that there is some recourse for this. I mean, a United States that actually wants to enforce these norms could actually do that. Um, but we just, you know, need someone at the top who actually wants to enforce these norms that other generations have worked so hard to put in place. And also, I think in terms of making those you know this body of norms uh more more perennial and you know ensure, ensuring that it remains the norm in the future i don't think the best way for that is to have a U, a united states that goes back to being the pol the world policeman you know because uh there's a lot of resentment that goes with that there's a lot of you know i think basically those norms would be much more effective uh throughout the world if other countries were made to to gain ownership of them, rather than ra rather than seeing them as something imposed by the U.S., which you know. Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, uh, an and I wouldn't say that which, it should be the United States doing all of it, because yeah, the U.S. as world police is not a good measure. But how do you make that? How do you make them do that? Like Daniel was talking about, uh, the uh, the United States for better or worse, is a major factor in the JCPOA. I don't think it's the deciding factor, but in a lot of these things, it is the deciding factor because it is the only one willing to step up. And when you have countries who historically, and I, <laughs> this is just a bad example, I apologize about this, but like France, who's unwilling to step up and kind of take a more of a military role in, uh, in a unifying military role, they're very willing to take unilateral action when it comes to like Africa or their former colonies, but very unwilling to work militarily or integrate militarily with a larger body. Well, who then I steps up? I will counter Afghanistan uh, to that, where France was part of the of the coalition. Uh, in Mali, for example, France had intervened on its own, but through a mandate 
of the Security Council and because nobody else was willing to intervene, we, we asked repeatedly uh, our European Union partners, including the UK, which is sort of the, the only country that has the capability like that at the moment, to help us intervene in Mali. Nobody stepped up, so we went alone. Um, I, d I don't think France is the best example, but I do take your point uh, in general. And, you know, France is definitely not, has neither the will nor the capability to intervene throughout the world in, in the way that the US does, obviously. Uh, but so in terms of, you know, getting ownership of, of rules, etc., I think a good way to start is to encourage the creation of uh, similar but parallel organizations to, to the Washington Consensus organizations. You know, it can be regional organizations like ASEAN, which, is, uh, which you know, has its flaws but is, is founded on uh, good principles. You've got, um, so for example, the Asian Development Bank was, was created by China as a sort of alternative to the World Bank. And that is, you know, that's a, it's, it's explicitly a competitor. But if you would encourage uh, other countries, you know, other than China, who don't have this aspect of competition in itself uh, to, to do the same sort of thing, to create multilateral banks that don't depend solely on the United States, that would be a good factor to to sort of um, to sort of disembody the norms in a way to 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 tear out these norms from their U.S. history, U.S.-based history, and make them stand as norms per se. But in mean? that sense, I, I completely agree with you that we would need kind of parallel. But that that runs the risk of like the Asian Investment Bank being used for explicitly political purposes on other routes. So, I mean, you have uh, I forget what uh, Russia's uh, economic union that they have up there is. I forget the, the Eurasian right economic now. union. Yeah. Yes. And you have all these parallel systems set up specifically, like you say, to compete with other systems. But they're very much still political entities and they're only meant to, I guess, advance the interests of the founding uh, entity. So you could say the United States, uh, a lot of these systems, yes, are abused by the United States in terms of like secondary sanctions. We use our economic clout to do things that we really shouldn't with a neutral organization, but China does the same thing. Russia does the same thing. And you have more of these parallel organizations I think that's just going to fracture the world further, right? It's it's just going to accelerate the pace towards a multipolar world where you have spheres of influence and don't encroach on someone else's sphere of influence. So, what I think what I meant was more so so also on the on those rival institutions that I use explicitly for political purposes. There's no way to prevent the creation of that from, you know, by either the US or Europe. You know, Russia will create them, China will create them. There's no way we can prevent that. What we can do is set up an, al an alternative system. And so I guess what the, the end game I was hinting at is the replacement of a US-centered order with an order that's centered around liberal values. And so not, not, necessar not necessarily, it can be an alliance of, several diverse states is my point um sebastian i actually definitely agree with what you're saying that if um 
we just take what we currently have and sort of morph it away from strictly U.S. centered to the values that the U.S. has been trying to push out into the international sphere, um, make it centered more upon those grounds, it would definitely be a more solid foundation because then you are sharing that among all of the nations rather than just the most powerful one, which, as we've seen, can very easily be... um, I mean, I don't want to use the word hijacked, but it can very easily be uh, led astray. I think you'd have to get beyond the reference level of states if you really want something that's not going to inherently promote or instigate competition between states. But this is the new era of state of interstate conflict, really, is this is you're seeing more state versus state thing, which we thought was gone in the era of international liberal international order. And we're seeing a resurgence of statehood and nationalism throughout all countries. So I, I'm just very pessimistic that anything is going to stick unless it is state-based, because states are the arbiter of all power. It's it's only since since you know since 1989, yes, it you know the state-to-state conflict went down and now it's going back up, but it's only on a very small time scale. If you look over the whole of the 20th century, we're at a we're at a time right now where most conflicts are either, uh, you know, civil wars, in, intra-state conflicts, or or conflicts with non-state actors like ISIS or stuff like that. There is, you know, there there's more state-to-state conflict than there was ten years ago, but not much more. I mean, it doesn't really apply for any further back in time. So the Iran nuclear deal isn't the only area of the Middle East where the United States is shaking things up. Late last year, the United States announced that it would be moving its Israeli embassy from the city of Tel Aviv to the city of Jerusalem. This may seem trivial at first, but this move was highly symbolic of a shift in the recognition of legitimacy in the ongoing Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Whereas before, almost every nation attempted to show respect to both sides by keeping the recognition of Jerusalem open until a final negotiation was reached. Now, the United States has effectively admitted that it recognizes the Israeli side and not necessarily the Palestinian one. As everyone predicted, this resulted in protests last week as the embassy was opened in Jerusalem on the same day as the 70th anniversary of the official creation of the State of Israel, which naturally made things even worse. Dozens of Palestinians have been killed during protests along the border with the Palestinian area of Gaza, and fears have been renewed of yet another Palestinian uprising known as an intifada. So is there any hope for peace? Do the main parties in this conflict even want to achieve peace? No. (laughs) All right, yeah, no, I I agree. Sean, all right. (laughs) Right, okay. Well, I would actually say that currently what Trump is doing, he's just saying that the world should admit that Oslo Accords are dead. That basically there is no hope that Palestinians could get their own state anymore. So what he is doing, he basically has decided to devise the peace plan on the expense of the Palestinians. I'm basically uh, trying to be as much pro-Israeli as possible and then uh, basically exert pressure on the Palestinians, in this case 
and isolate them so they would accept any peace deal, whatever the United States says. And that's how I think he proposed to solve this issue. The question is whether it can really work and whether it's realistic. Hmm. You know, I've heard some people say that maybe it would shock, um, shock Palestinians back to a negotiating table, but the problem with that, and I feel a bit cynical saying this, is that I, I don't really think beyond putting a good face on the move, I don't really think that Trump or Netanyahu are actually thinking beyond simply getting what they want out of this. Um, I mean, if it, it, it yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually surprised during our entire Iran half of the segment, we didn't even talk about, uh, you know, the role of Israel in, um, you know, Trump wanting to backtrack from the Iran deal. I'm sure that we could go on and on about that, but, you know, it just feels like when you look at the embassy opening, that it just felt like authoritarians praising each other for this, this sort of, uh, maneuver, you know, so it's like Trump is to... Netanyahu's opening of the embassy as Netanyahu is to Trump's pulling out of the Iran deal. It's just these are leaders that are clearly stroking each other's ego in this process of backtracking from um, status quos to do unpopular things. Yeah, and also on, on Daniel's point about uh, Trump's strategy being to put pressure on the Palestinians so that they agree to anything. If that really is his strategy, then he has not looked at the history of this conflict, which would not surprise me, by the way. But what I mean by this is the Palestinians have been submitted to and have withstood much greater pressure than an embassy opening in Jerusalem. <laughs> and we've seen what has happened since. You know, this is not putting pressure on Palestinians is not a winning strategy. It, at best, it will achieve nothing. At worst, it will achieve a new intifada. Exactly. I mean, at this point, I mean, if the blockade of Gaza didn't do it, if the massive settlement buildings didn't do it, if, you know, you know, if dividing up Hamas and Fatah, if that didn't do it, then yeah, exactly. Moving a building isn't going to do anything either. And anyone who thought that this would shock the Palestinians into a negotiating table or into the negotiating table... I think would be pretty, um, you know, pretty ignorant of what's actually going on in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They're just going to be more dug in, and more, you know, it might have a negative connotation, but they'll be a little bit more stubborn about the whole process, and kind of understandably so. I mean, and also, you know, whether or not they move the embassy, I mean, conflicts between Israel and Gaza leading to high numbers of casualties have happened before. So, in theory. Um, whether or not they move the embassy, you know, it, it could be not a matter of if violence between Israel and Gaza happens. It's just a matter of when or timing. You know, it could be holiday X or election Y uh, in terms of when violent outbreaks are staged. Because there's definitely yep. a lot of staging involved. When these conflicts happen, they're staging. As in, it's an intentional decision by leadership in the region. Um, since, you know mobilizing of IDF to an area or mobilizing of Hamas agitators to an area is a decision made by the authorities. And that's yep. what causes the violence, you know? So this is not an organic riot. It's a highly inorganic phenomenon that's promoted by the politicians. Exactly. This, and both this sides, is a political maneuver. 
both sides want to see violence from this because it, it benefits win. both of them. I, Hamas I should say, stays in power, Netanyahu stays in power. Yep, it benefits Hamas and it benefits Netanyahu at this point. So, you guys, you know, I think I agree. Like, it's it's so confusing, and I I would just want to warn you guys, I'm not big on Middle Eastern politics, but to me. Um, something that I did want to kind of understand better was the role of the countries that are next to those territories. So let's say, look at Egypt. I mean, it has a peace treaty with Israel from 1978. It was the first biggest treaty signed by the Arab state and underwritten by massive amounts of American aid to both Egypt and Israel. But that treaty forbids Egypt from a military presence in um, the Sinai Peninsula, and that has helped, yeah, (laughs) and it's helped militant and criminal groups flourish there. Then we go to Syria. The Syrian government is super hostile to Israel. I mean, it's aligned with Iran, which is like Israel's greatest adversary in the region today. And Syria also wants the Golan Heights um, that was seized by Israel during the 1967 war, I believe. And then we look at Lebanon. Lebanon is automatically Hezbollah, (laughs) anti-Israel Shia Islamist group funded by Iran. And I feel like Lebanon is unlikely to play any role in this um, negotiations because I feel like Hezbollah has been that major force in Lebanese politics right now. So if we go jump to Jordan, we have that eastern Israel's eastern neighbor. And um, I heard I read a couple of papers that it has a concentration of Palestinians refugees there. But those Palestinian refugees have been just shoved into crowded camps and just treated terribly. That's why Palestinians. I was going to say there are actually more Palestinians living in Jordan than there are in Palestine. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it basically said, that Palestinians are skeptical if um, the neighbors are going to support the Palestinian cause. Then we go back to Iran that we discussed earlier. I mean, the government believes Israel is fundamentally illegitimate and supports the most hardline anti-Israel Arab factions. And um, Israel sees Iran as a direct and existential threat because of the um, financial backing to Hezbollah, Hamas and Syria the axis of resistance. Um, Something interesting I read about was Turkey. So Turkey has become increasingly pro-Palestinian in recent years. Um, Erdogan has positioned himself as like the champion of the Palestinian cause for geopolitical reasons, I believe, and domestic as well. That would be Um, Turkey's uh, honeymoon number 67 in the Middle East, really. (laughs) He had his honeymoon with Israel that went sour. He has his honeymoon right now with Palestinians. I wonder how that'll go sour. I know. And I mean, uh, there have been some sort of diplomatic relations between Israel and Turkey, but I mean, they kind of renormalized them in 2016, but they're like still fragile. So the last one we have, which is Saudi Arabia, which is donating hundreds of millions of dollars to the Palestinian Authority. And um, it was the driving force behind the uh, Arab League, League peace plan, which was kind of like an alternative to that traditional negotiation between Israel and Palestine. But um, even though Saudi Arabia has not recognized Israel yet, uh, the two nations have a mutual goal with, you know, hostility towards Iran. So I feel like 
that's still like a working relationship between the Saudi and Israeli governments. What do you guys think about like all of these, you know, neighboring countries, how their role is going to be? I think that's actually super interesting that you uh, because you're right. All the it is state relationships that define a lot of what Israel is able to do, and especially like in, when you were talking about the Sinai, uh, is uh, uh, there has been a growth of Islamist groups in the Sinai, but Al Sisi and uh, Bibi Netanyahu have kind of a modus vivendi between them both, where there are actually unmarked Israeli aircraft attacking the Islamists in the Sinai Peninsula. Obviously, uh, Al Sisi although his population is very much anti-Israel, is will cooperate with Israel in almost everything that they do down there because I believe he sees the Palestinians as more of a threat than the Israelis. And it it's, it's comes down to a lot of these state-to-state relationships where is it better to have a relationship like Iran with a people without a state or like Egypt with a state that's not ne- necessarily representative of its people and I think that for a lot of the uh, what's happening there, it's showing that the state-to-state relationships really will more stabilize than the uh, state-to-people relationships. Actually, uh, it reminds me kind of one theory which I heard that basically the UP's plan for Trump uh, to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, would be to extort pressure with Iran as basically well, goes together with the GCPOA and in exchange for that uh, he would talk to Saudi Arabia uh, into abandoning uh, Fatah leadership, the current president uh, Abbas and basically then it, he would be replaced uh, by a guy who would accept everything uh, basically what Israel and United States would do so I think it also goes together uh, with this, with basically that uh, closer alignment with between Saudis and Israelis, which is happening currently, because it seems for Saudis that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, which was which has had been a really big thing for them in in 70s and 60s, has now become a secondary issue, and it seems that Iran is uh, getting to be their foreign policy priority. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think, I, I don't know. It's also, it's it's going to be very interesting to see with these protests, obviously, uh, you have multiple countries in the region wanting to take control and say that they are the regional leader. Turkey's trying to be the regional leader. Egypt still wants to be the regional leader. Iran still wants to be the regional leader. Saudi Arabia wants to be the regional leader. And even, uh, was it Qatar, wants to be a regional leader. And with all those different uh, ambitions at play to some extent you can only really see these issues like as you're saying they're pawns all these issues are different pawns on the chessboard and it's going to be the fate of israel and the fate of palestine lays in the global machinations of these other countries that want regional power and to whoever whoever wants to say anything that's not united states and russia at this point are local powers that are really the ones pushing the pawns and it's i obviously we don't have it we the united states doesn't have as much influence as it used to russia doesn't have as much influence as it thinks it does china still is only economically influential the european union 
doesn't really have a lot of clout to push people around in that area. So there's really nothing the rest of the world can do. And all we can do is, to some extent, try to temper this game they're playing. But it gets back to the four-dimensional chess that Matt mentioned. This is this is why... I was being facetious. I know, but the, this is why the United States needs a stocked State Department. Because this is an incredibly complex issue with multiple different factors playing into it. If we're going to talk about the U.S. role... Um... The United States has played a massive role in peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And with the exception of the Palestinians, Israel technically has peace with all, I guess, 22 Arab states. It might be a cold peace, but it's a peace nonetheless. And a huge role of that role in that is economic initiatives. Um, Israel is like the number one pharmaceutical country or pharmaceutical producer in the Middle East, I believe, as it stands. But... Due to its roles vis-a-vis the United States in qualifying industrial zones in places like Jordan and Egypt, those countries are have um, a massive boost to their manufacturing, which is good. They get a diverse economy because they're not oil states. You know, as it stands, for example, Jordan is the number one pharmaceutical producer amongst the Arab states, and I believe that it is no coincidence that that might have a lot to do with the fact that. The U.S. has facilitated free trade zones between Israel and Jordan. Um, So you have something where, for example, 45% of production might be done in Israel, and then 55% is done in Jordan, then Jordan gets to probably call it a Jordanian product, and Jordan gets to take credit for it. And, you know, maybe maybe that doesn't feel fair, but, you know, in exchange for that, you see peace and cooperation in the region, so it's totally worth it. That's just an example I'm spitballing out there, but I, I would like it to be recognized that through economic initiatives, peace is possible. But those are um, very – that was that was when the United States had a lot of clout behind it. The United States doesn't have near as much clout. Clout, no. You Israel. just need to throw money at well, the situation. It doesn't, but that doesn't necessarily mean works. anything. Billions no, of dollars. Because in the Pardon? Obama administration, they couldn't get Israel or Saudi Arabia to do anything because they just didn't like them. The United States just doesn't have that clout to really push around countries anymore because they have other options. You it's try not to... pushing them around. It's a positive reinforcement well, even... through financial and diplomatic schemes. Well, you can, yeah, you can try to subsidize them and you can try to make these benefit schemes to try to, in, we, in, we... well, it's a, to try to get them to go one way or another. But in the, the end, they're going Egyptian to be. The Egyptian peace deal has been entirely contingent, at least, you know. For the majority of its existence, on financial aid to Egypt and Israel, you know the United States gets billions of dollars to Israel and to Egypt um, as a form of military support for both countries. In exchange, the countries won't attack each other. No, I, I think that's I think that's a very pessimistic way of looking at it. I think there is a, I think a, all these politics are reinforced by those United States economic uh, things that you're mentioning. But to a large extent, it is glo- it is the ambitions of these countries and what they want to do that really drives the politics. So uh, both al-Sisi and um, Netanyahu realize, and the governments of both countries realize, they can't really afford hostilities between each other. So they find a modus vivendi. Yeah. And I th- well, and by in 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 this day and age of three billion dollars a year or whatever to Israel and two and a half billion dollars a year to Egypt is really not a, you know, 
as a percentage of their military spending isn't as big as it seems. Like, it's only a few million. No, and that's, you know, see, that's what I'm trying to like say, 10... though, is that the United States doesn't have that economic clout that they used to have to really push all these things. I think that uh, you can say the United States is a factor, just like Russia is a factor, just like China is a factor, but it is nowhere near the strength of the factor that it was in the 1980s, the 1990s. So then that raises the question, what should the United States role be? I mean, if if things seem to be working out more or less okay with just America's financial backing of uh, the peace process or continuing the existing peace that's already occurred, um, what should the United States role be? I mean, should we be expending so much political and economic capital on getting a peace plan that probably neither side really wants to begin with, especially when there's so many other things going on in the world that the United States has core strategic interests in. Um, I just don't see Palestinian-Israeli peace as a core strategic interest for the United States. The pressing point is I completely agree with you. It's, it's, not, it's not in the core interest of the United States. It'd be nice, but honestly, I mean, the United States has done well enough without peace for how many decades yeah. in the region well, and is it uh everyone else is it, is it in anyone's core interest is it in france's core interest is it in the uk's core interest it's in i i, I don't well here's a good example of why i think the well it might not be in our core interest but how we could play a role um i mean i think it's in our core interest in terms of our reputation is important um and if we want to be taken seriously, uh, it would be important to promote peace um, between the Israeli and Palestinians. Uh, sure, sure. But doesn't our reputation get harmed every time we try a peace process and then it fails miserably as it always does? No, yeah. I don't think so, because then you can always blame the others, basically, and say, you know, we've done everything <laughs> we possibly could, but they're just too <laughs> stubborn, which is yeah, good point. I mean, is not very far from the truth, is it? To, and, to and a certain extent, a billion dollars would you know, go a long way yeah. in the territories. Because the thing is, all that foreign powers can do, and it's a lot, but all that they can do ultimately is create the best possible conditions for a peace plan to be agreed to. They're not the ones who get to sign the peace plan. And so, ultimately, you know, the foreign powers, be they the US, France, the UK, or even China or Russia or anyone, um, they can make all the all their best efforts with all the best intentions in the world, and still fail if you know the two parties don't want to agree to a deal. So in that sense, I don't think that failure in in a reaching a deal on that issue harms the reputation of the US or whoever tries it because it's you can reasonably say that it's actually not your fault if it fails. But is it a misplacement of resources? I mean you do have to have people down there setting those conditions. You have to have economic incentives. And those can be spent other places like saying trying to defuse the conflict between Pakistan and India. I mean that's just as untenable but and arguably has even more security implications for the world than this does yeah i think that's a that's a good point though um in some cases it might be better 
to have resources wasted on that. I shouldn't say wasted, <laughs> but have resources expended on this. Um, I mean, come on, it kept Jared Kushner busy for, busy for a while. And... I think that perhaps resources spent on um, the conflict would actually be a much more impactful if we um, consider our role. For example, I think the U.S. spends about, uh, I think for like every dollar or every three dollars that we we give to the uh, Israelis in aid, we give about a dollar to the Palestinians. And um, intermittently, you see terrible mismanagement of their funds. But in general, it's also a shortage of funds. They might have unpaid government workers. And then you see something like, for example, as you mentioned before, Saudi Arabia stepping in and giving funds to the Palestinian Authority. That's just to patch up some serious budget issues. But I mean, if you end up... um, paying the salaries of workers, you know, in Palestinian Authority controlled regions, I mean, you end up having a massive amount of influence over those people. So I think that it's important to see if the US, if you want to say, oh, you know, our spending on the region doesn't have a huge impact. Well, if we stop spending, and someone else spends money, then those people are going to have influence. So I think it matters who spends their dollars on what in the Middle East. I think it really does matter. It certainly matters. I mean, we certainly wouldn't want to completely abandon the position in the Middle East, but um, I think it's just the question of how much more do we expend in terms of resources to try to get a peace process that it seems that both sides don't actually want in the first place. On an interesting side note, I did read an article recently saying that there are a lot of uh, Palestinians now that just favor the one state solution. And they say they don't actually like, I think Valida, what you were referring to as well, but actually in Palestine that they prefer, they see themselves as well, you know, we're never going to get a Palestine anyways. We might as well just integrate with Israeli society. And I, I think that's very interesting. That's going to be a very interesting dynamic. Well, that would be a greater existential threat to the Jewish state. Um, yes, it would. This yeah. is why. Yes, this is why it, it seems, in my personal opinion, a bit short-sighted um, for the current Israeli government to just expand settlements and, um, you know, slowly accumulate um, land in the West Bank and appropriate it for um, Israeli settlers, because eventually um, Israel will be in a situation where for the sake of stability, they are just going to have to embrace a one-state solution. And if you have a one-state solution, what's going to happen to the millions of Palestinian Arabs or possibly uh, people of Palestinian ancestry in the diaspora who would want to repatriate places like Jordan? Uh, Unless you have a comprehensive two-state solution where there is a Palestinian land that Palestinians can go to, where they can have their passports and where they have their own government, et cetera, et cetera, then they were just going to have to uh, cohabitate in Israel. And, you know, I don't understand it unless you want to have some sort of binational state with separate governments, you know, where whereby you have two different nationalities in one state. I don't know how you would how you would implement such a plan. And again, it would just turn into culturally speaking, a demographic arms race, you know, can you imagine if you had a one state solution where all of a sudden, you know, 
nearly 50% of the population is Arab, and then they vote people into Knesset, and all of a sudden the Jewish state, you know, by virtue of its Knesset uh, being majority Arab, could potentially be abolished. Oh, I think that that's, that's very much overestimating uh, what or underestimating what the Israelis would do at that point, because I think that this gets back to, and for everyone that uh, we were, before we were talking about these, uh, some camps in uh, uh, China, and this gets back to exactly what Hannah Art wrote about in the origins of totalitarianism. And if if you create a nation state which is based on being Israeli and being Jewish, you cannot be Arab and Muslim in that state, like you're what you're saying. So that leads to other conclusions. It doesn't lead to enfranchisement. It will never lead to enfranchisement. It leads to further and further disenfranchisement and. <laughs> We, we know what she wrote about, obviously, which was the uh, uh, Holocaust. And I, I, don't, I don't think it will come to that. But, I mean, you, you're just going to have further and further disenfranchisement as you push out those borders. You're going to be trying to push Palestinians into smaller and smaller slums and ghettos. And you're basically creating, <laughs> you're creating a horrible situation. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen, Matthew, Valida, Sebastian, and Daniel for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, or you can subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.